Okay, let's read together, shall we, from the New Testament. This church is working through the Gospel of Matthew, one of the four biographies of Jesus, and we've reached a very odd bit indeed. <laughs> let's read the story in uh, Matthew chapter 17. And we start from the very start of that chapter. This is what it says. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This is interesting. The pictures are doing funny things, but we'll get, we'll get the reading through first. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped him, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? (laughs) Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Interesting. Let's uh, just see if I can make sense of this thing for a moment. Let's end the slideshow and start it again. It's probably the easy way. Let's try that from beginning. Yes, we're back on screen. That's great. Baptism is a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, why do you have to go down there and get wet like that? What's it all about? And the answer is it's about death and resurrection. You see, the water in the pool is a symbol, if you like, of death. Uh, The Israelites were not very good sailors. There was one tribe who went down to the sea in ships, and the other 11 tribes thought they were ridiculous. Uh, The Israelites were farmers. They were agriculturalists. They stayed on the land. And so often you'll find the, the water, that water in the Bible is an unstable, shifting kind of a thing. People aren't very sure whether they trust it or not. So it becomes a symbol of death. And when you go down into the water... That's like saying, I'm dying. I've died. And fortunately, we didn't leave Cameron down there. He came up again, and just good job too. And uh, when you come out again, that's like saying, I'm rising again. I have risen again. And you see, what you're doing when you're baptized is you're identifying with what Jesus did on the cross. He died so that, as Mark so clearly explained, our sins could be forgiven. We could be washed clean. We could have a new life. And we don't stay down there in the bottom of the pool. We come rising out of death again when we get out. And then we get a towel and get ourselves dry again. And uh, that's what baptism is really all about. The death and resurrection of Jesus is right at the heart of the Christian faith. However, at the time when this story happens that we're going to unpack a little bit now, the disciples that were following Jesus around didn't totally understand that. They were just learning as they went along. Um, I had to do an assembly in a school in Exeter earlier on this week, and uh, it's a a Church of England school which has got uh, a thing they call the character compass, which includes lots of values which the kids are supposed to build into their lives as as, as they go through life at the school. And uh, this uh, term, they're talking about wisdom. Each assembly is supposed to be a feature of wisdom. And one of the features that they gave me to talk about this week was making links. 
If you're wise, you will make links between things, you'll see patterns, and you'll steer your way through life properly. And uh, I'm no mathematician, but this is, this is, I'll just show you a few things I did here. I, I showed them this square, which people in some cultures, in Persia, in China, in India, have thought is so magic that if you put it on the wall of your house, it will ward off evil. What's magic about it? Does anybody know? Okay, add up the numbers. Sorry? 15. What does that mean? 15. All right, okay. If you add up the numbers going across or up or even diagonally, you'll find they all come to the same figure. And people say, whoa, it's magic. But actually, it's quite easy to do. You can do it with all sorts of different um, uh, squares, provided it's an odd number. You can, there's a rule for doing it with even numbers too. But basically, there's a 7 by 7 one. Now, I've sometimes gone into school and said to kids, okay, let's make a 5 by 5 square. Take a piece of paper, tear it into 25 bits, write numbers from 1 to 25 on the bits, and shuffle them around until you get some, something coming out. And it takes hours. It's a great thing to do if you haven't got a lesson plan. <laughs> But actually, if you know the rules, and this is what I did in the assembly, I'm not going to go through all of that now. If you look at the the way in which one compares to another, and you start to work out some of the links between those two squares of different sizes and the rules that are going on there that make them make sense, you can actually do a square of any size knowing the numbers very, very quickly. So, as part of that assembly, we did a 5 by 5 square. I got them to help me with it, and we did it in, I think, less than 1 minute 30 seconds. You can move faster... You can get results once you start making links and hooking things up. It makes a lot more sense, and then each line will add up to the same figure. Sometimes people don't see that, and they get a bit... uh, They see things happening, but they don't make connections the way that they should. This is Thomas Schapter, who was a doctor in the Royal Devon and Exeter Hospital before it was even royal. It was just the Devon and Exeter General Hospital back in his day. And uh, he was there when, in uh, 1832, a cholera plague struck Exeter. And he wrote a fantastic, gripping account of what it was like to live in a city just up the road from here when people all over the place were being struck down suddenly and mysteriously by an infection that took their life away. Gripping book. And in the frontispiece of it, he put a map showing where all of the different cases of cholera in the city took place. And you can see they're all concentrated on one area uh, around 4th Street, uh, the old part of the city, down Stepcut Hill. And he never asked himself, why is it all concentrated there? Because he didn't see a pattern. He didn't see any links. Well, move on 20 years, and in London, you've got a man called John Snow. And another outbreak of cholera comes along in Soho. And so he reads Chapter's book about it. And he looks at the map at the start, and he says, that's amazing. That's a fantastic way of plotting it. But unless you draw some conclusions, you don't go anywhere. So he did the same in Soho, and he drew a map of where all of his cholera cases were happening. And he found they clustered around a pump in Broad Street, now Broadwick Street. And uh, he started to realise that the pump was the source of the infection. Uh, Actually, there were horrible things happening underneath the pump, and when they dug it up, they found out what it was. I won't spoil your lunch by telling you. But that was obviously the source of the infection. And so if you go to to Broadwick Street today, you'll find they've put up a replica pump just to honour what Snow did. He put two and two together. People died like flies in Exeter because nobody could work it out. But in London, hundreds of lives were saved just because John Snow knew what he was doing. Now, Jesus' method of teaching was a bit like the making links, connecting things up model. Jesus used to tell lots of stories as parables. 
And they were vivid stories. People got them. They understood the story. The, the, the images stayed in their mind. But they didn't really totally always understand what they were about. And Jesus would just say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, that's all right. We've got ears. But I've not got ears. What's it all about? And sometimes he'd explain to his disciples the ins and outs of the story afterwards. But a lot of the time they didn't understand as well. And much of the time you see them walking along behind him, sort of saying, so um, what do you think he was talking about now? What do you think that one meant? And Jesus, like other rabbis of his time, taught in that way. He just gave them the data and let them make the links. And just before we reach this story here, Jesus has, has, has um, been with his disciples, as you've seen if you've been here over the last few weeks, uh, has been with his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi, about as far north in Israel as you can possibly go. And he says, okay, who do people say that I am? And they say, oh, well, some people say you're Elijah, and some people say you're this prophet, and some people say you're a prophet, but they can't tell which. He said, yeah, but who do you say I am? And there's deep silence for a moment, and then Peter takes a breath and says, because he's always the one who'll jump into situations, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And you can almost hear the sigh of relief. God, Peter, that's brilliant. You've got it. That's amazing. And you see, Jesus didn't tell them. He didn't sit them down on a log just when they came to be his disciples. Right, you guys are going to be my disciples. There are some things you've got to know. One, I'm the son of God. Right. Two, it wasn't like that. He let them pick it up, put the facts together, make links, make a pattern and see what's going on. But they didn't totally understand because, as you will have seen, (laughs) Peter immediately jumps in again. Jesus starts talking about death. He says he's going to die. And Peter says, oh, no, Jesus, you're just having a bad morning. No, 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 that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus turns around and says, get behind me, Satan. And Peter is absolutely crushed. How could Jesus say something like that? And it's at this point, or six days afterwards, <laughs> uh, or eight days afterwards, uh, that, depending on how you're counting, that Jesus has this amazing experience. Where did it happen? We don't know. The mountain's not, not named. But uh, it's either Mount Tabor. This is the sort of traditional site uh, that uh, you'll still be taken to if you go to the Holy Land today. And say, this is where Jesus was transfigured. Pretty unlikely, really, because it was a dirty great Roman garrison at the top of the hill in Jesus' day. So not too likely. Other people say it was possibly Mount Hermon, which is a much bigger mountain, this one. We just don't know. But Jesus, at this point, is still up in the north of Israel with his his disciples. And after this experience, if you plot his movements, he goes south very, very quickly indeed. Here's an excerpt from a a timeline of of Jesus' life, all of the different things that happened in Jesus' life, reconstructed on the internet as well as it can be done. And the story we're talking about this morning is up there at that point in the line. And everything you can see after that point goes further and further south. Jesus sets his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He knows that after this, he has to go and be arrested and die. And so this, this, this moment is incredibly important. What's going on here? Why were there only three people involved? uh, uh, Peter, James, and John. Why not take all the disciples up there? What actually happened? Why did Jesus give them this this spectacular, supernatural show rather than just telling them what the truth was? Well, let's have a look at it. Uh, You see that there are three different groups of people involved in here. There are the three disciples, for a start, uh, Peter, James, and John. There are the two visitors that come and talk to Jesus in the vision, Moses and Elijah. And there's the one saviour, Jesus right at the heart of the whole thing. 
And he's the source of, of everything that happens here. No wonder the disciples are, 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 are uh, so bewildered. They can hardly talk about it. It seems to have happened towards night. At least the disciples were pretty tired. And they may have nodded off for a few minutes. And when they woke up and, and looked up again, there's Jesus. But it's not Jesus. Well, it is because you can recognize his face. But his face has been changed in the most amazing way. It just looks different somehow. There's glory shining out of it. And his clothes. Well, Matthew says, as, as, as we saw there, his clothes became as white as the light. Mark says his clothes became so, so white that nobody on earth could bleach clothes as white as that. And Luke, when he tells the story, says his clothes became as, as, as white as lightning. And you can see the different Gospels are just scrabbling for words to explain the, 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 the sheer glory that shone out of Jesus. And there were two other people there with him. They weren't quite as glorious. But when you listen to what they were saying to Jesus and what Jesus was saying back, it was pretty obvious who they were. There was Moses, one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, who'd been dead for oh, thousands of years. <laughs> and there was Elijah as well, who was one of the great heroes of Israel. And nobody ever thought they'd see him again. But there they were, on top of the mountain. And the disciples are absolutely terrified. What's going on? Well, let's look at uh, those three different groups of people just for a minute each. First of all, the three disciples. Peter, James, John. Why them? Why those three? Well, I think it's because they were the kind of inner circle of the group of 12. And they were taken sometimes to places that the others weren't taken to. And that may be because they would have a massive role to play in the growth of the new Christian movement after Jesus' death. James, for a start, was the first person to be martyred. The first person to lose his life after Stephen says, but one of the earliest people to, to die for his faith in the Christian church. He set an example for others uh, of, of, of giving himself for the cause. And he wouldn't have been prepared to do that if he hadn't been absolutely sure about the glory of Jesus. John, well, he lived to uh, a very old age in the city of Ephesus. He was one of the uh, the few people from that generation who survived to old age. If you look at the list of 12 disciples, they all seem to have died in fairly horrible ways and uh, before they were all that, that, that old. John lived. John told the story again and again. We've got accounts of John being carried into church in Ephesus when he was a very old man. He couldn't walk anymore. And every morning he'd say, So John, have you anything to say to us? And he'd say, Little children, love one another. But you said that last week. What have you got to say this week? Love one another. And uh, that was John. He'd learned so much about the importance of, of, of love through his life. It comes out in the terrific gospel and the fantastic letters that he wrote. And he had an important job to do as well. And then, of course, Peter. Peter, the one who let Jesus down so badly just shortly after this episode. And yet was recommissioned by Jesus and told, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. So important in the early church. And so those three, I think, were given experiences that the others weren't given. Now, there were three of them that we know about, and they all have something to do with death. The first time you read about the three of them being taken off their own, on their own is when Jesus heals Jairus' daughter and shows that he's sovereign over death. He, can, he, he can't just heal illness. He can bring people back from beyond. Death has no terrors for Jesus because he's sovereign over it. The second episode, well, that's right here at the Transfiguration. And Jesus is, is showing that he's supreme over death. He's, it, it's, it's not a barrier to him in any sense whatsoever. There's Moses, there's Elijah. They haven't been around for hundreds of years. And Jesus has brought heaven and earth together and brought the dead and the living together at the same time. 
And the third one, of course, is in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus shows that he's got to suffer death too. And those three disciples are taken away with him as Jesus goes through the most horrendous mental struggle of his life. Father, if it's possible for this cup to be taken away from me, let that happen. And yet, not my will, but your will be done. And uh, they're so unimpressed at this that they fall asleep at that point. They were obviously awake enough to hear those words. But they didn't understand. They just didn't see what was going on. I think Jesus put them through those experiences because they needed to realize the eternity of Jesus. The fact that he's not just a human prophet. He's not just a Messiah who appears as God's deliverer for one generation and he's gone. He has an eternal importance. The second question you can ask is, well, why then? Why does it happen at this point in the Jesus story? Wouldn't it have been nice if it started right at the beginning with all the disciples? So they could all say, oh, yes, there's Moses, there's Elijah. Whoa, there's Jesus. He looks a bit special. He must be the son of God. That would make it nice and easy, wouldn't it? Why does it happen here? Well, I think it's just because of what's happened in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus has, has, has uh, had them confess to him, yes, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. And he thinks, that's fantastic. And then they mess it all up because Jesus talks about his death and his resurrection. And they really haven't got that bit yet. They haven't connected that up to the other things that Jesus has been saying. And so they reject the information. And after Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, to one of his closest followers, there must have been a pretty uncomfortable silence in the group for a few days. And they walked around for six days after that. And the the atmosphere can't have been too good. There's a great uh, preacher at the start of the 20th century called G. Campbell Morgan, who wrote a fabulous book called The Crises of the Christ, about the crisis moments in Jesus' life. And one of his great crisis moments is is the transfiguration. And uh, Campbell Morgan says, for a week, you must have been able to cut the atmosphere with a knife, because they just did not understand what Jesus was getting at. And so Jesus here finds this way of showing them in an unforgettable way one more piece of evidence that he is something far bigger than they ever thought he was. So it needs to happen now because they need to see what Jesus' authority is all about. And you could say, well, why like this? You see Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus and then uh, Peter makes his, his silly comment, about, oh, let's build three booths, one for Moses, one for Elijah and one for Jesus. That's fair. Shall we do it right now? And he's just terrified. It says that he he didn't know what he was saying because he was so scared. Then a cloud comes down and envelops them. And in the middle of the cloud, they can see nothing except brightness. But they can hear a voice. And the voice is saying, this is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. Listen to him. And then the cloud disappears and they've fallen down to the ground in terror by now. First thing they know is a touch on the shoulder. And it's Jesus looking very, very human (laughs) and saying, come on, get up and don't be scared. And it's all gone. Why did it happen in that way? Well, I think because they had to see very clearly that for all the greatness of Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and and Ezekiel and all of the great prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus was on a different level completely. And they hadn't got that yet. So this whole experience, it seems to me, taught them about Jesus' eternity. It taught them about Jesus' authority. That he was the one whose word they had to listen to, whether it made sense to them or not. And third, Jesus' uniqueness, the fact he was completely different from everybody else. He was God's son. He was the one missing piece of the jigsaw that made sense of what God was doing in the world. Let's look at the two visitors for a moment. Why did Moses and Elijah come and talk to Jesus? Wouldn't it have been enough for Jesus just to stand there in his glory and say, look, lads, here I am. I'm the risen Lord of glory. Do you understand? This is what he looks like when you see me in heaven. He didn't do that. In fact, it's as if they're overhearing a conversation that's going on. 
Why those two? I mean, he could have brought back, I don't know, Daniel, Jehoshaphat, any of the Old Testament heroes. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, I think there are various reasons. First reason is, Moses was the one who gave the people the law. And Elijah was thought of by the Jews as the greatest of the prophets. And if you read through the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets both point forward to the Messiah. And I think Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, are looking to Jesus in the sense of saying, it's him, that's the one, it's all about him. And the disciples start to realize that Jesus is not just a leader, a rabbi, a prophet, but he's actually greater than Moses and greater than Elijah. Another interesting thing, I think, is that Moses and Elijah were people who made an exodus. The Greek word exodos is used here about what Jesus is going to do. It's what they were talking to him about. Moses and Elijah, it says in Luke, were talking to him about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You might think, well, Jesus didn't exactly accomplish his departure, did he? It wasn't a sort of orderly goodbye. I'm dying now, goodbye. He was taken, he was nailed to a cross, he was spat on, he was rejected by everybody. How did Jesus accomplish his departure? But what's going on here is the disciples are getting the first inkling that when Jesus dies, it's not just a nasty accident. God is behind it. It's all planned. It's all going to happen. It's an exodus. It's a departure, not just a meaningless death. And when you look at Moses in the Old Testament... The thing he's known for more than anything else is the Exodus, taking people away from Egypt through to the Promised Land. When you look at Elijah and the way he died, well, he didn't die, did he? He was taken by God and he just disappeared into a a fiery chariot and nobody saw him any longer. His departure was very much organized. It wasn't that he died one day, he was taken by God deliberately. And so there are men who made an Exodus and that too points forwards to what Jesus is going to do. There were men who were called to do a pretty horrible job as well. Do you know that Moses and Elijah are two of the three men in the Old Testament who said, God, I can't take any more. Take my life away. The three men who wanted to die. The other one was Jonah. (laughs) But uh, these two great servants of God found the job was just too big for them. And at one point or another, they cracked. Jesus didn't. You hear him in the Garden of Gethsemane saying the same sort of thing, don't you? Lord, if there's any way that this cup can be taken from me. And yet, he says what Elijah and what Moses could not say. Yet, your will, not mine, be done. And so they're pointing towards somebody who's going to be in the same situation as themselves, but he's going to go all the way through. And the fourth thing, well, there were men who stood alone. There were men who uh, had to be on their own a good deal of the time. Elijah uh, was somebody who, uh, who was, was, was uh, hunted down by Queen Jezebel. And at one point he has a nervous breakdown and you see him running away from Mount Carmel down into the desert, hiding in a cave. And uh, he just doesn't know where he's going. You see Moses too, so defeated and broken down by the constant griping and, uh, and animosity of the people he's led through the desert that in the end he does something very foolish when God tells him to do a miracle and God says, look, you've been so stupid, you're not following instructions, you're not even going to make it into the promised land. It will have to be a new generation. So those men knew what it was like to stand alone, to be scorned by everybody and to fail. Jesus was like that too, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, somebody whom even his closest disciples didn't understand and yet he went all the way through. So I think that's why the two visitors, let's finally though have a look at the one saviour. Because that's the important thing, isn't it? Jesus is there in the middle of this whole experience. What does it tell us about him? 
What would the disciples have noticed about it? Well, I think once again there are four things, and I'll rattle through those very, very quickly because you've had a lot this morning and it's time, time we ended. But first of all, I think they saw that the feast of booths, the feast of tabernacles, had been fulfilled. You might say, that makes no sense to me. Okay, well, once every year there was a feast called the Feast of Tabernacles when the Israelites would, as part of their celebration, make little booths for themselves to live in. Just for the week, it was a bit like camping out in a tent or something, except you made the tent first. And you did that just to remember what it had been like for the children of Israel to have no home, to have got out of Egypt and to be on their way to the promised land. And it's all about the faithfulness of God and how he he led them through in an orderly exodus out of the land of death to the land of promise. Bit of a picture of what was going to happen to Jesus, I guess. And it must have been that picture that was in Peter's mind when he starts saying, well, we'll make three booths, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. He wasn't talking about building churches or founding monasteries or something like that. He was talking about these little temporary structures. And so he must have been thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, perhaps he was thinking about it because on the first night of the Feast of Tabernacles, the sky in Jerusalem was lit up, much like the sky at the Transfiguration. You see, in the courts of the temple, there were four massive, massive candlesticks, each with four arms. And it said that when you lit them, the flame shot up into the sky. And so you have 16 blazing candles shooting light all over the sky. It was, it was, it was like Guy Fawkes night, I guess. It was like a firework display, the best you could do that, that far back in history anyhow. No gunpowder around. And that experience of the light piercing the darkness must have stuck in Peter's mind, which is why he thinks, here we go, it's the feast being replayed, but this is the fulfilment of it. This is what it's really all about. And dimly he thought, well, you know, we probably live in those booths to honour Moses. So uh, now they've got Elijah back and Jesus is there with them, let's build three booths and we can honour all three of them at the same time. And it's at that point that he finds out he's wrong to put them on the same level. They must have thought too about the book of Daniel. Because in the book of Daniel... There's a a vision that Daniel has of somebody who is incredibly bright. Somebody who is a son of man. He's a human figure, but he's in heavenly glory. And for the first time, they see that this phrase that Jesus has been talking uh, talking about himself with, using to describe himself, the son of man, is actually who he really is. Because there he is in all the glory of heaven. And uh, all of these Bible references come into the minds. Remember at the book of, end of the book of Daniel, it says that multitudes that now sleep in the dust of the earth shall arise and they will shine like the stars in the sky and the, the, the dead are going to come back in the, the last day. And so they see that here's somebody who's far greater than Moses, somebody who's brought Moses and Elijah back with him. And it's as if the bounds of time and space have been transcended and those who've died and those who are alive are there. It's like a, a kind of foretaste of heaven, isn't it really? And that's the fourth thing. It's a foretaste of the end. They knew that at the end, there was going to be a great resurrection. Moses and Elijah were going to be around again. They just didn't expect it to happen on the mountain in Jerusalem, in Judea, in their lifetime. But it was happening right in front of them. And they could see this is something massive. Now, they didn't understand it completely at this point. And you've got to say that uh, when Jesus actually came to the point of his trial and death, They got it completely and totally wrong, as you will see as you go on reading through the story. But I think this story, this this experience rather, sowed a seed which helped them put it all together and make the connections when the resurrection took place. Read the resurrection story in in the Gospel of John. Mary Magdalene comes running back from the tomb and she said, there's, there's nobody there. 
They've taken the body away. It's gone. And Peter looks at John, and John looks at Peter, and they start running. A disappearing body. Somebody who's not in the tomb any longer. That brings back memories of an experience they once had on the mountainside. And so when they get to the tomb, John doesn't even go in. He stands outside because he thinks, wow, if what I'm thinking is right, I'm standing on very, very holy ground. Peter, of course, just barges in past him and goes in. And he sees that the, the grave clothes are there, but the body isn't. And it's not that the grave clothes have been torn off in a hurry. It's as if a body has risen through them, melted away. Death can't hold it any longer. And they saw the tomb and they believed. And I reckon it was the transfiguration, this experience we've been reading about this morning, that helped them to believe. And Jesus does this, I think, at this point, because sometimes when we need help in putting it all together, in making sense of what's going on, God does that kind of thing. Samuel Rutherford, and uh, I'm just finishing with these last two examples, uh, was uh, a preacher in Scotland who was imprisoned for his faith in Aberdeen, terrible place to be in prison, and uh, he was in jail for a long time. And he must have thought that his life's work was over. And he wrote letters from the jail. And one of them, he wrote, Jesus Christ came to my cell last night. And every stone of it glowed like a ruby. And he just felt the presence of Jesus in a closer and more real and more powerful way than ever before. And he realized the authority and the power and the beauty and the attractiveness of the person he was worshipping. The Maréchal, Catherine Kate uh, Booth Cliborne. Uh, the daughter of the founder of the Salvation Army, was thrown into prison in Neuchâtel in, in, in uh, Switzerland in the 1880s for preaching to, uh, to people. It wasn't illegal, but uh, they thought, well, it's, it's, people are getting converted, it's upsetting people, just throw her in jail and the problem's over. And so she must have felt absolutely at her wit's end. What do I do next? Totally depressed. This was not in the plan at all. And she wrote a poem while she was in there. Best beloved of my soul, I am here alone with thee. And my prison is a heaven, since thou sharest it with me. Wicked men may persecute me, banishing to solitude. They should know my joy in Jesus, whom they never understood. At his voice my gloom disperses, heavenly sunshine takes its place. Bars and bolts cannot withhold him, hide from me his lovely face. You may never have a mystical experience like that. You will certainly never see the transfiguration as those early disciples did. But at times when you need it, if you know Jesus, he will draw very close to you. And his beauty and his authority and his love will overpower you and keep you going once again. If you don't know Jesus, well, as Mark was saying this morning, maybe you ought to start some exploring. John's going to come back and give us our final hymn. Thank you, John, for being with us this morning. It's great to have you. And uh, John Allen will be back with us this evening, um, half past six. I'm going to stand and sing our final song, number 544 in the books. Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. The chorus says this, silently now I wait for thee, ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes, illumine me, spirit divine. Thank you. Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my hand.
just a reminder that um, there is tea and coffee after the service, um, and there is a, a church lunch today. So please bear with us as we uh, uh, put tables. Uh, the great day we've had to, to, to learn from you, to worship you, to, uh, to be here for, for Cameron's baptism service. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for all the things that we've done. Uh, just help us um, to remember um, your word this morning and help us to to learn, continue to learn more from you as we go through our our lives this week or uh, the rest of today. And just pray now, Lord, as we leave this place, you'll be with us and to meet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.